Brussels Bytes, a podcast about technology, digital society, and European policy. Brought to you by the Martin Center with Dimitar Lilkov. Hi, friends. As we start another podcast episode, I just want to share a word of thanks to all of you for your interest and support. We started Brussels Bytes three years ago, and I'm extremely happy that through highs and lows, through pandemics and political drama, we're continuing our series with some of the most interesting experts of the world of technology and European policy. Thank you for being part of this fantastic experience. Speaking of interesting guests, today we are happy to host a great guest from the Mediterranean. Vagelis Papa Constantino is a professor of law in the Free University of Brussels, focusing on data protection, cybersecurity, and the broader topic of the regulation of technology. Currently, he is also the Data Protection Officer, or DPO, of the leading political party in Greece, Nea Demokratia. Vagelis, thank you very much for joining us. Dimitar, thank you very much for the invitation. Thank you very much for having me. I certainly hope I can live up to the high expectations of your kind introduction and uh, looking very much forward to this. Of course. Now, Vagelis, um, it's been a while since we had the pleasure of hosting an academic. Um, and given that you are involved with some of the most interesting topics of today, cybersecurity, data protection, Tell us a bit of your life as a professor and about your life with engaging with young students on some of these you know, cutting-edge topics. Yes, this can be a double-edged sword because it is uh, interesting, but at the same time it is challenging. Simply in order to keep up with everything that's been uh, taking place uh, the past few years in the field of uh, regulation of technologies, digital technologies, so to say, uh, is, uh, is a tremendous task merely to map the field. And even if you wish to go deeper and uh, be productive academically, in a sense, it is uh, even more difficult. However, challenges are always welcome and accepted. And, uh, of course, uh, the connection with uh, the younger generation, to which this is not entirely new, is uh, most welcome and uh, pleasant. How are your students responding to all these topics? Data protection, cybersecurity... Are they concerned? Are they engaged? It is, of course, they are concerned and engaged. Everybody is at the end of the day. However, it is uh, an entirely different perspective because younger generations are practically born into the digital. Whereas for my generation, I'm in my late 40s now, so. And uh, I, I was not born into the digital. The digital came and found me midlife. Uh, and uh, I had to somehow adapt and still have to try to keep up. Whereas for the younger generation, it is self-evident that uh, there is the digital around them. We spoke uh, a bit before in our conversation about the, the digital effect. And then I really like the phrase you use, the normalization of the internet. What exactly do you mean by this? And how do we tie it with, with you know, today's generation? Yes, today's generation will never understand uh, how things came to be, but uh, to older people like me, it has been uh, a tremendous change because uh, the first uh, age of the internet, let's say in the 90s, it was a completely different thing that uh, revolutionized a great many industries. It brought down uh, the music industry, it brought down the film industry, or at least threatened to bring down, and most certainly brought down the business model. Um, 
um, and uh, now it threatens to break down the press industry. However, first victims have been normalized. Because uh, at first the traditional business model of music production and uh, dissemination was broken, but now it is fixed through uh, subscription services. Mm-hmm. The same with the film industry. So it's uh, it's gradually being normalized and the same I think will soon happen with the press industry because right now it's under a crisis, but I think soon we will enter subscription services, closed walls, etc. So I think that the internet came up as something completely new and entirely evolutionary, but now it's being settled into the norms that humanity already knew before the internet came. But it's a process. But are, were we prepared for this for this change, given you know the repercussions we've seen online? The problems we've seen online, the fragmentation we've seen online, now it's you know it's a new normal, of course. But it seems as if that all of this change kind of you know came to us, but we're not fully prepared. And here I'm hinting at data protection, for example, and privacy, for example. Yes, you can never be prepared for change, otherwise you would not have been uh, changed. And uh, these are perhaps necessary steps, disruptive disruption, distraction, unavoidably, and then rebuilding. So I think it's a, it's a normal uh, life process. But yes, privacy and data protection law uh, are uh, technologically, they have their origins in uh, technology, they develop through technology, and for the moment at least, formally, it is our only response Humanity is only response, not only Europe's only response, to technology. Mm. But this will soon change. <laughs> Speaking of which, by the way, uh, this month, it's four years since the General Data Protection Regulation, or the GDPR, came into effect. There was a lot of expectation, a lot of uh, worries, a lot of hype surrounding it in 2018. I remember that the Martin Center was also engaged in, in discussing all of the, the these, these issues. Four years later, where do we stand when it comes to data protection in Europe? And has this been a successful process or we're still figuring it out? No, to me, it has been a success story. Absolutely. Uh, to me, it's cause for celebration, the, this, uh, this anniversary. And uh, for Europe, externally, it has uh, set the global paradigm for uh, regulation, not only of personal data processing, but of technology in general. All over the globe, the industry's response, even in the US, each time a new technology is released, be it bio, be it self-driving cars, be it drones, AI, whatever, is time and again the GDPR principles, specifically referring even the Americans to the GDPR principles. Beyond that, China only recently released uh, personal data protection law that has been explicitly, again, by the Chinese uh, words, uh, influenced by the GDPR. The same has been the case with Brazil, India, and many other countries uh, on the planet. Therefore, I think that for European purposes, external European purposes, this has been an absolute success. Internally, We can discuss for hours if uh, implementation has been successful or not. Enforcement could be better, could have been improved. This is an open issue. But again, to cut it short, I am positive. I think that, uh, yes, it is a successful example. 
the thing is that exactly uh, implementation has been an issue, especially when we talk about uh, data protection administrations across across the EU, and the fact that there are still bottlenecks of large scale big cases against certain companies which are still unresolved. And I think that this is the biggest challenge in the future. It's not that the rules of GDPR are not uh, proper, but when it comes to national administrations, we've, we've seen bottlenecks. Now, um, when I introduced you, I mentioned that you are a DPO or data protection officer, which is an extremely interesting position, by the way. You are one of the very few DPOs I've actually met. And I remember back in 2018 when the GDPR was being um, enforced, all of these companies and big companies had to rush to find to find DPOs. Now, you are a data protection officer of a political party in Greece. Maybe it will be interesting for our audience to share what exactly does this entail and uh, what's your what's your everyday life being a DPO? This is exactly the challenge, the political party. Because, of course, uh, following the GDPR requirements, a lot of organizations need to incorporate into their structure uh, DPO, the position of the DPO. To some, it is new. To some, it is an old, uh, old news. Uh, however, a political party is different to any other organization because, in principle, an organization does not process data as the main course of its activities. It can be an, in, an industry, an enterprise that provides a service, sells a product, and then in that course of action, it processes data of its clients, of its suppliers, for the purposes, very specific purposes of uh, of carrying out its business. This is not the case of the political party, because the political party, by definition, only processes data as its own purpose of processing data for uh, electoral success, obviously, at the end of the day. Therefore, uh, personal data are embedded in a political party, whereas this is not the case in most other, in any other uh, industry. So it's extremely interesting. New challenges uh, come up every day. A political party does not become alive only during election period, mm. but also the, in the in-between. Although citizen individuals not voting uh, may not perceive uh, often a political party as uh, alive and breathing during the intermediate period, this is not the case. This is not the internal elections, uh, reshuffling, uh, so it's, it's always interesting. One of the biggest criticisms of GDPR to date has been that this is extra red tape, extra costs for companies. And for example, exactly the DPO position was attacked uh, throughout the years, basically saying that why is Brussels making us uh, you know, open up new, new positions and allocate resources for DPOs? How would you respond to this criticism? That in short, this is the cost of doing business in Europe. And uh, there is a competitive advantage in doing business in Europe, not only because of the market, but because of the name Europe has outside Europe. And this is the cost of doing business. And uh, it cost will only increase. And how are other international partners globally responding to this? What's what's your position? You mentioned that you know we're influencing other other countries, but yes. are we actually influencing them in, in, in substance? Or absolutely, uh, this is the. The well-described phenomenon, the Brussels effect, mm -hmm. uh, there is a rich bibliography in this regard, also in other fields of law. I think it's uh, predominantly the case in digital, the regulation of uh, digital technologies. The GDPR is a precursor of uh, things to come. However, please also consider that uh, right now there are at least five or six other eponymous European acts, the DGA, DMA, DSA, the AI Act, 
the Data Act, we wait for the Data Resilience Act that uh, will be released, are unique again on the planet in their subject matter and scope and are, expecting, are expected to further the Brussels effect even to a larger extent outside Europe. So if you ask me, this is perhaps popular, but to me in a three polar world where the US owns technology and China owns money, Europe owns regulation. Oh, yeah, just to just to jump in, uh, the Brussels effect you just mentioned, um, this has been coined as a term by, by the academic Anno Bradford. And just to clarify for, for our audience, this is the premise that through its soft power, through its uh, uh, supranational legislation, actually Brussels and the EU is influencing the rest of the international community. And this is a positive spillover, which makes sure that Brussels actually establishes its own standards internationally. I, I'm very optimistic about this term, and I'm very hopeful about about these processes. Now, the thing is here, as as a point of of you know either criticism or rebuttal to what you just said, is okay. But is this the only thing the EU is going to own? Regulation? Does it mean that we'll forever you know lag behind when it comes to access to talent, to funding, to the you know innovation, breakthrough technology, and all that? Yeah, I, I'm a lawyer, so may, I may be accused of self-serving and purposes, but uh, I think it is more than enough. I think the providing regulation and uh, policy and theory to the planet is more than uh, enough for a role of a single uh, region. It is extremely important. There are uh, positive side effects to be taken advantage of, so, uh, but I will not go into that uh, in, any, in any more detail. And uh, I think, yes, this is Europe's contribution. And I also think that this is Europe's contrib- potential Europe's contribution, because quite frankly, I do not see Europe uh, competing at a level of technology found uh, elsewhere. Not, not in the sense that we, we cannot, but in the sense of the size of the market. Because this cannot be achieved, startups in China or uh, the US have an immediate user base of uh, several uh, hundreds of thousands of users simply by starting up, whereas in Europe, with the, the, by definition, fragmentation of language, uh, this is simply not possible. Therefore, we will never reach that critical size of the market necessary to develop technology and to the same end, the critical size of economy itself. But this, of course, is my own thought. And uh, again, in a self-serving manner, I think that offering offering regulation to the planet is more than enough uh, as a role for Europe, and uh, we should uh, take advantage of that. Also, given that even though we have a smaller smaller market than let's say let's say China, when it comes to wealth, when it comes to GDP, we can leverage exactly this size, and I think this is a very important avenue. Now, the things you mentioned about privacy are extremely, extremely interesting. But this also brings me to the, the other topic we want to discuss on cybersecurity, which is another field of your of your expertise. Are you that optimistic on cybersecurity as much as you're optimistic about data protection and the role the EU has, has had in the last couple of years? I am. However, there is no go-to uh, legal instrument, uh, same as the GDPR in the field of cybersecurity. We have, of course, the NIS directive, currently discussing NIS2, and a couple of other uh, complementary uh, regulatory tools. However, I remain optimistic. We still need the go-to instrument. And this cannot be the Cybersecurity Act, but still, this is an internal discussion. We, need, we still need the 
basic text of reference that I hope uh, will come. However, I'm, I am optimistic because uh, Europe is again the first to start uh, formulating the legal response to cybersecurity. And this is important because until recently, inside and outside Europe, cybersecurity has been a technical, uh, an issue for engineers mostly, less for policy makers and lawyers. But this is changing and I'm happy to note the change first happening again in Europe. The thing is that, indeed, it's a technical issue and it's something which usually is in the remit of, of uh, digital companies or businesses and people rely on these external providers for, for ensuring their cybersecurity. Um, however, do you see such a strong supranational framework being developed in Europe, given that right now, I mean, we see cyber attacks happening on a daily basis, we see them becoming even more elaborate, and to be honest, people's culture um, when it comes to digital hygiene, if I may use this term, um, there's more to be desired, no? Yes, absolutely. The problem, but this is to me, of uh, European policy on cybersecurity is that uh, I think it is too much uh, state and organizations relevant, leaving the people outside of the picture. I think that uh, maybe a rethinking of the whole approach uh, is necessary to bring the people back in the picture. Because if you consider security on the streets, then it is also a matter of individuals. It is There is a right to security. How come suddenly when we start talking about cyber security, it only becomes a matter of the state and of large organizations? There's something to me at least wrong there. So I think a change of perspective is necessary. However, the good thing is that uh, again in Europe we have started discussing this. How do you bring the individual in this process, though? Is it through education? Is it through specific inclusion? Is it through specific means? I would propose, uh, at the end of the day, a special right to cybersecurity, individual right. But even if we do not go that far, still, uh, yes, education, a whole culture, in the same, very same manner that a whole culture on data privacy has been developed, through the GDPR, but also earlier than that, uh, in the same manner, cybersecurity should become a concern of every European individually, not as an expectation of the state or uh, his or her employer to provide, but rather of ourselves. Now, it gets really tricky here because one might argue that even member states, national capitals and specifically security services across the EU have a vested interest in making sure that you can tap into people's user data or you can snoop on conversations. And here, by the way, I'm referring to the Pegasus case. I'm sure that you're, you're, you're aware. And just for, for a quick, quick refresher on this, in the last couple of years, we've seen really abysmal cybersecurity breaches by uh, a certain company, NSO, which provides and sells software to enforcement agencies, to government agencies, and even maybe to private entities. And this type of software can basically crack exploits in iPhones, exploits in, in Android devices, and through an extremely elaborate process, make sure that your conversations or your communication is being recorded, and you have no idea about this happening. It's not about a phishing email or something you, you actually clicked. It's a zero-click software which just starts operating uh, through an upgrade or a software exploit. Um, and we've seen th there's been an amazing investigation by Citizen Lab, uh, and we've seen how this is used against dissidents, active politicians, and it goes through the to the very top of the European political elite. So 
are actually all of these actors incentivized to close all of these loopholes or will forever be stuck in this recurring threat of, of, cert, of such breaches? Yes, spyware, the spyware issue is, uh, is a well-discussed uh, issue these days. But let me please uh, take a step a step back mm-hmm. because the main problem with cybersecurity is lack of clarity as a term. And let me please explain this. If we, again, if we talk about security, the known security on the streets, then there is the right to security, individual security. There is national security. There is public order, security uh, agencies. So there are many terms to describe the many aspects of a single thing, security. How come then when we talk about cybersecurity, everything falls under the same term? Because cybersecurity is the same thing as me losing uh, my password, I don't know, somebody accessing my email. At the same time, cybersecurity is used for spyware, Mm -hmm. which in principle is uh, secret uh, services snooping on people of interest. So, but we cannot keep having the same term to discuss to cover everything because uh, we look we lose a uh, track of w- what is happening so if we wanted to focus on spyware as part of cybersecurity then uh, yes this is something unregulated of course as such however again please consider that in the real world it is not unheard of for secret services to keep uh, an eye on persons of interest be it uh, by physical means on the streets or uh, electronically This is not unheard of. In democratic societies, we have uh, procedures for that. And uh, at some point or another, spyware will have to enter these procedures. It has not yet done so, as I understand it, as I read also in the the press, but it it will happen sooner or later. But again, this is a completely different thing. Cybersecurity as national security and cybersecurity as uh, individual uh, issue of me losing my email account. This is a great point, actually, that it's there is no democratic process and no democratic oversight on these processes, even if they're led by security agencies. And this is something we've struggled in the in the last decade that these things are happening, but there's no actual procedure so that our societies can know that this is happening in a transparent way. But I agree with your point about differentiating between the two. Now, you, you come from Greece, and I'm just curious, because usually in our podcast, we talk about the supranational aspects and, and Brussels this, Brussels that. What's your impression of, of, uh, of Greece on the national level when we talk about cybersecurity? And maybe in more general terms, are national capitals in the EU, I mean, your personal impression, how are they tackling this issue and how can this be improved? Good question. Let me please first remind you that uh, the NIS directive came out in 2016, Mm -hmm. so only five years ago, and uh, it was the first time that uh, national capitals were uh, obliged to produce a national strategy. Many of them, uh, I do not want to refer specifically to Greece, uh, did not have uh, any, so they were forced to produce for the first time, although cybersecurity as an issue was obviously known to politicians, for at least a decade before 2016, but still at that time, uh, national capitals had to create uh, and publish a strategy and then take specific measures uh, for cybersecurity. For many among them, it was a first. So I think that uh, the Brussels effect uh, on national level is positive because it forces people to do things, be it politicians, be it governments, be it organizations. Still, there is a 
and for power from above to force you to do things that otherwise might uh, uh, go under uh, the routine uh, way of... So it is a positive uh, effect. And uh, I also think, and this is a different approach that is applicable to cybersecurity, but also to other digital technologies, that uh, it is good for Europe, for Brussels, to be putting the first paper on the table on how regulation should be done, rather than vice versa, because these are topics that are better treated uh, horizontally, so to say, at EU level, rather than first individually and then trying to converse. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, the question here is whether the Brussels effect is going to spill over international cybersecurity as well, because I think this is one of the biggest challenges in the digital domain in the next uh, years and decades is exactly establishing these standards internationally. Now, when you think about the international community, especially, uh, for example, our transatlantic partners in the US, where do you see the international level going on cybersecurity? Are you optimistic that through diplomatic tools, through multinational fora, that you know the world is going to raise its game and it's going to be a race to the top rather than a race to the bottom when it comes to cybersecurity? At some point, it needs to be regulated because right now it is not regulated. And uh, as everybody can understand, the biggest problem in uh, cybersecurity when it comes to national security is attribution. You cannot know who is attacking you at any given moment. Attacks are going on at any given moment from everybody to everybody on the planet. And you can never be certain. So adding this spyware and uh, all other tools of uh, cyber warfare it is not regulated and it needs to be regulated and uh, i see the international uh, involvement uh, moving to that direction slowly but steadily at some point it will get regulated however at the end of the day it will remain a national security issue that for the moment also in europe it is not uh, a power given to to brussels yet at least. Therefore, it will remain a national security issue to be regulated by capitals. But at some point, in the very same way that we have agreed on normal, so to say, warfare, the traditional thing that uh, humans fought for the past uh, 3,000 years, and we have agreed today on uh, certain rules applying to that warfare, uh, we need to devise new rules to apply to cyber warfare. And this needs to happen at some time in the near future. The sooner the better. You're absolutely right. One of the biggest problems we've had is about attribution. Uh, You know, you can uh, suspect that, let's say, Chinese or Russians are are behind a certain operation, even if there are snippets of information which hint at this, but it's very difficult to prove the direct link between state intent and the and the actual effect. And by the way, this is also interesting for, for NATO, by the way. And, this- and also from the West, I have to add uh, attacks from the West, because we have had attacks from the West to, to third countries, and even they could not be attributed. So it's not only the countries you mentioned, it's everybody attacking everybody and nobody getting credit, in a way, for what uh, that country has done. And this is also touches even up, uh, about our collective security through NATO, by the way, and art- the famous Article 5 on, on collective defense. And uh, it's a discussion within the defense community. Can we activate Article 5 if, if there's a large-scale cyber attack against one member? And how can we actually uh, follow up and, and, and help on, on this one? 
Um, now, I really like your point about the right to individual cyber and cybersecurity, and hopefully we'll, we'll be getting there. But now in, in closing of our conversation, maybe I just want to scale down from the macro perspective to the micro perspective and, and bring you back to your, to your academic life and your, and your interaction with students, because this is extremely interesting for me. How are they responding to all these topics about regulation, about legislation, about all these complex supranational rules? How are they responding and are they optimistic or they, they think that there's something wrong with our approach? Understandably, within a law school, a law faculty, it's business as usual, of course, because it is new rules and regulations and lawyers like them. So it's, uh, it's good business. Uh, however, to reply to your uh, question with skepticism, because uh, the law as such, as an idea, as uh, a tool of regulating human behavior, is being attacked these days. We think that there may be other alternatives or uh, there may be other tools of regulation. Uh, I do not agree to that uh, mentality. However, it is out there, and uh, in some cases uh, it is dominant, in more technology-driven uh, cases. And uh, again, the role of the law is being questioned, to say the least, within uh, faculties of law, but also within faculties of engineering, information technology, management, uh, f- from many angles. We think that maybe there is another way or a better way or, uh, again, I am not uh, agree with these uh, approaches. However, unavoidably, they are reflected also in the approach of students who wish to see the whole picture also in class and uh, wish to be provided with a full uh, idea and range of alternatives. So we have law, we have soft law, we have many centers of uh, production of regulations, we have the machine artificial intelligence, so they need and deserve to be given the full picture. And then they can decide for themselves. This has been the voice of Vagelis Popa Constantino. Thank you very much for joining us, Professor of Law in the Free University in Brussels. Thank you very much. Dear audience, thanks for tuning in and see you soon. That was today's episode of Brussels Bites. Follow us on SoundCloud for more.